This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Robert Browning by G. K. Chesterton Section 20 Chapter 7 The Ring and the Book Part 1 When we have once realized the great conception of the plan of the ring and the book, the studying of a single matter from nine different standpoints, it becomes exceedingly interesting to notice what these standpoints are, what figures Browning has selected as voicing the essential and distinct versions of the case. One of the ablest and most sympathetic of all the critics of Browning, Mr. Augustine Birrell, has said in one place, that the speeches of the two advocates in the ring and the book will scarcely be very interesting to the ordinary reader. However that may be, there can be little doubt that a great number of the readers of Browning think them beside the mark and adventitious. But it is exceedingly dangerous to say that anything in Browning is irrelevant or unnecessary. We are apt to go on thinking so, until some mere trifle puts the matter in a new light and the detail that seemed meaningless springs up as almost the central pillar of the structure. In the successive monologues of his poem, Browning is endeavouring to depict the various strange ways in which a fact gets itself presented to the world. In every question there are partisans who bring cogent and convincing arguments for the right side. There are also partisans who bring cogent and convincing arguments for the wrong side. But over and above these, there does exist in every great controversy a class of more or less official partisans who are continually engaged in defending each cause by entirely inappropriate arguments. They do not know the real good that can be said for the good cause, nor the real good that can be said for the bad one. They are represented by the animated, learned, eloquent, ingenious, and entirely futile and impertinent arguments of Juris Dr. Botinius and Dominus Hyacinthus de Archangelis. These two men brilliantly misrepresent not merely each other's cause, but their own cause. The introduction of them is one of the finest and most artistic strokes in the ring and the book. We can see the matter best by taking an imaginary parallel. Suppose that a poet of the type of Browning lived some centuries hence, and found in some cause celebre of our day, such as the Parnell Commission, an opportunity for a work similar in its design to the ring of the book. The first monologue, which would be called Half London, would be the arguments of an ordinary, educated, and sensible Unionist who believed that there really was evidence that the nationalist movement in Ireland was rooted in crime and public panic. The other Half London would be the utterance of an ordinary, educated, and sensible home ruler who thought that in the main nationalism was one distinct symptom, and crime another, of the same poisonous and stagnant problem. The tertium quid would be some detached intellectual committed neither to nationalism nor to unionism, possibly Mr. Bernard Shaw, who would make a very entertaining Browning monologue. Then of course would come the speeches of the great actors in the drama, the icy anger of Parnell, the shuffling apologies of P.O., but we should feel that the record was incomplete without another touch which in practice has so much to do with the confusion of such a question. Botinius 
and Hyacinthus the Archangelus, the two cynical professional pleaders, with their transparent assumptions and incredible theories of the case, would be represented by two party journalists, one of whom was ready to base his case either on the fact that Parnell was a socialist, or an anarchist, or an atheist, or a Roman Catholic, and the other of whom was ready to base his case on the theory that Lord Salisbury hated Parnell, or was in league with him, or had never heard of him, or anything else that was remote from the world of reality. These are the kind of little touches for which we must always be on the lookout in Browning. Even if a digression, or a simile, or a whole scene in a play seems to have no point or value, let us wait a little and give it a chance. He very seldom wrote anything that did not mean a great deal. It is sometimes curious to notice how a critic possessing no little cultivation and fertility will, in speaking of a work of art, let fall almost accidentally some apparently trivial comment which reveals to us, with an instantaneous and complete mental illumination, the fact that he does not, so far as that work of art is concerned, in the smallest degree understand what he is talking about. He may have intended to correct merely some minute detail of the work he is studying, but that single movement is enough to blow him and all his diplomas into the air. These are the sensations with which the true Browningite will regard the criticism made by so many of Browning's critics and biographers about the ring and the book. That criticism was embodied by one of them in the words, The theme looked at dispassionately is unworthy of the monument in which it is entombed for eternity. Now this remark shows at once that the critic does not know what the ring and the book means. We feel about it as we should feel about a man who said that the plot of Tristram Shandy was not well constructed, or that the woman in Rosetta's pictures did not look useful and industrious. A man who has missed the fact that Tristram Shandy is a game of digressions, that the whole book is a kind of practical joke to cheat the reader out of a story, simply has not read Tristram Shandy at all. The man who objects to Rossetti pictures because they depict a sad and sensuous daydream objects to their existing at all, and anyone who objects to Browning writing his huge epic round a trumpery and sordid police case has in reality missed the whole length and breadth of the poet's meaning. The essence of The Ring and the Book is that it is the great epic of the nineteenth century, because it is the great epic of the enormous importance of small things. The supreme difference that divides the ring and the book from all the great poems of similar length and largeness of design is precisely the fact that all these are about affairs commonly called important, and the ring and the book is about an affair commonly called contemptible. Homer says, I will show you the relations between man and heaven as exhibited in a great legend of love and war, which shall contain the mightiest of all mortal warriors and the most beautiful of all mortal women. The author of the book of Job says, I will show you the relations between man and heaven by a tale of primeval sorrows and the voice of God out of a whirlwind. Virgil says, I will show you the relations of man to heaven by the tale of the origin of the greatest people and the founding of the most wonderful city in the world. Dante says, I will show you the relations of man to heaven 
by uncovering the very machinery of the spiritual universe and letting you hear, as I have heard, the roaring of the mills of God. Milton says, I will show you the relations of man to heaven by telling you of the very beginning of all things and the first shaping of the thing that is evil in the first twilight of time. Browning says, I will show you the relations of man to heaven by telling you a story out of a dirty Italian book of criminal trials from which I selected one of the meanest and most completely forgotten. Until we have realized this fundamental idea in the ring and the book, all criticism is misleading. In this, Browning is, of course, the supreme embodiment of his time. The characteristic of the modern movements par excellence is the, pathe is the apotheosis of the insignificant. Whether it be the school of poetry which sees more in one cowslip or clover top than in forests and waterfalls, or the school of fiction which finds something indescribably significant in the pattern of a hearth rug or the tint of a man's tweed coat, the tendency is the same. Maeterlinck, stricken, still and wondering by a deal door half open, or the light shining out of a window at night, Zola filling notebooks with the medical significance of the twitching of a man's toes or the loss of his appetite. Whitman counting the grass and the heart-shaped leaves of the lilac. Mr. George Gissing lingering fondly over the third-class ticket and the dilapidated umbrella. George Meredith seeing a soul's tragedy in a phrase at the dinner-table. Mr. Bernard Shaw filling three pages with stage directions to describe a parlour. All these men, different in every other particular, are alike in this, that they have ceased to believe certain things to be important, and the rest to be unimportant. Significance is to them a wild thing that may leap upon them from any hiding place. They have all become terribly impressed with, and a little bit alarmed at, the mysterious powers of small things. Their difference from the old epic poets is the whole difference between an age that fought with dragons and an age that fights with microbes. This tide of the importance of small things is flowing so steadily around us upon every side today that we do not sufficiently realize that if there was one man in English literary history who might with justice be called its fountain and origin, that man was Robert Browning. When Browning arose, literature was entirely in the hands of the Tennysonian poet. The Tennysonian poet does indeed mention trivialities, but he mentions them when he wishes to speak trivially. Browning mentions trivialities when he wishes to speak sensationally. Now this sense of the terrible importance of detail was a sense which may be said to have possessed Browning in the emphatic manner of a demoniac possession. Sane as he was, this one feeling might have driven him to a condition not far from madness. Any room that he was sitting in glared at him with innumerable eyes, and the mouths gaping with a story. There was sometimes no background and no middle distance in his mind. A human face and the pattern on the wall behind it came forward with equally aggressive clearness. It may be repeated that if ever he who had the strongest head in the world, had gone mad. It would have been through this turbulent democracy of things. 
if he looked at a porcelain vase or an old hat a cabbage or a puppy at play each began to be bewitched with the spell of a kind of fairyland of philosophers the vase like the jar in the arabian nights to send up a smoke of thoughts and shapes the hat to produce souls as a conjurer's hat produces rabbits the cabbage to swell and overshadow the earth like the tree of knowledge and the puppy to go off at a scamper along the road to the end of the world anyone who has read browning's longer poems knows how constantly a simile or figure of speech is selected not among the large well-recognized figures common in poetry but from some dusty corner of experience and how often it is characterized by smallness and a certain quaint exactitude which could not have been found in any more usual example thus for instance prince hohenstyle schwagnau explains the psychological meaning of all his restless and unscrupulous activities by comparing them to the impulse which has just led him even in the act of talking to draw a black line on the blotting paper exactly so as to connect two separate blots that were already there this queer example is selected as the best possible instance of a certain fundamental restlessness and desire to add a touch to things in the spirit of man i have no doubt whatever that browning thought of the idea after doing the thing himself and sat in a philosophical trance staring at a piece of inked blotting paper conscious that at the moment and in that insignificant act some immemorial monster of the mind nameless from the beginning of the world had risen to the surface of the spiritual sea it is therefore the very essence of browning's genius and the very essence of the ring and the book that it should be the enormous multiplication of a small theme it is the extreme of idle criticism to explain that the story is a current and sordid story for the whole object of the poem is to show what infinities of spiritual good and evil a current and sordid story may contain when once this is realized it explains at one stroke the innumerable facts about the work it explains for example browning's detailed and picturesque account of the glorious dustbin of odds and ends for sale out of which he picked the printed record of the trial and his insistence on its cheapness and its dustiness its yellow leaves and its crabbed lantern the more soiled and dark and insignificant he can make the text appear the better for his ample and gigantic sermon it explains again the strictness with which browning adhered to the facts of the forgotten intrigue he was playing the game of seeing how much was really involved in one paltry fragment of fact to have introduced large quantities of fiction would not have been sportsmanlike the ring and the book therefore to recapitulate the view arrived at so far is the typical epic of our age because it expresses the richness of life by taking as a text a poor story it pays to existence the highest of all possible compliments the great compliment which monarchy paid to mankind the compliment of selecting from it almost at random but this is only the first half of the claim of the ring and the book to be the typical epic of modern times the second half of that claim the second respect in which the work is representative of all modern development requires somewhat more careful statement the ring and the book is of course essentially speaking a detective story 
its difference from the ordinary detective story is that it seeks to establish not the centre of criminal guilt but the centre of spiritual guilt but it has exactly the same kind of exciting quality that a detective story has and a very excellent quality it is but the element which is important and which now requires pointing out is the method by which that centre of spiritual guilt and the corresponding centre of spiritual rectitude is discovered in order to make clear the peculiar character of this method it is necessary to begin rather nearer the beginning and to go back some little way into literary history end of part one end of section twenty